How are you doing today, church? Well, thanks to Pastor Michael, that's two reminders of how old I am today. And the truth is, I do remember when you can get ice cream for a quarter. Isn't that sad? It really is sad. But the other thing is the precious baby that I held in dedication today, I was selected to hold her because I held her mama at dedication and probably held her grandma at her dedication. (laughs) So... I would like to claim to be new here, but I've been around for a while. We have uh, some folks that are involved in other activities this morning, so if you're missing a couple of folks, that's, that's where they are. Let me just ask the Lord to help us today. We come to your word this morning, our Father, so grateful that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Thankful for the way you deal with us and the way you reveal the truth of who you are to us through your words. So let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight today, our Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. And everyone said, in the last few weeks, uh, we've been making, uh, we made a statement, it's happened a couple of times, about the altar or responding to the altar, the end of the message, and I just want to take a moment to expound on that just a little bit. Responding by coming to the altar is simply an acknowledgement that the Lord through the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart, he's dealing with you or in some aspect of your life, and you are simply recognizing your need of God's help and who of us in the room does, doesn't need that. And it could be for anything. It could be that you are responding to because of a sin issue in your life and you want to get your life right with God. Uh, It could be repentance. It could be simply surrender to obedience to God in some specific aspect that you become aware, again, through the the power and the strength and the presence of the Holy Spirit in in the service or in your life at that moment. It could be for healing. It could be for uh, just in need of God's help to get you through whatever the current life struggle struggle it is. Having said that, I've, I've often had the thought, you know, if I've not responded to an altar appeal in a while, maybe I should ask myself why. Because it's not about numbers, it's not about any of that or, or, or measuring anything. But the truth is, we come to the point of an altar as simply a recognition that God has done something within and that we need Him. How many today would agree with me that you need the Lord? All right, we all agree on that. We're all in need of God's help, all of us. And there's no need for us to go it alone. And I want to make it clear that in this house that responding to the altar is simply acknowledging that God is moving on your heart and there's something within you that's saying, I need the Lord's help, and today I'm I'm coming to just ask someone to pray for me. No one's pushing you. No one's prodding you. We're simply making the offer. Come to Jesus and, and let him help you. But we know that a lot of this depends upon where you are in the process of navigating through the issues of life. And let me just say, as, uh, on behalf of the pastoral team, myself and the team, I think I can speak for them, that in the midst of managing and administrating uh, all of the respective departments that we take care of and, and maintaining the ongoing functionality of the church, we also go from family crisis to family crisis to family crisis. I've dealt with three this week, and they're all heartbreaking. Every one of them are heartbreaking. That is both our calling as pastors and our privilege to be able to do that as spiritual leaders of this fellowship. Please know that that is our posturing on that. And most often, 
we see ourselves simply as, as triage, if, if I can use that word, to try to just stop the bleeding from something taking place. And that is our responsibility. Then we will often direct families to someone else who is uh, capable and trained and equipped to take them into greater depths of understanding what it takes for them to get in a healthy direction. However, one of the things that we have observed as pastors um, is that with families or, or individuals that are in crisis, they tend to go through certain phases in the process, and that's normal. When you do this all the time and you deal with this all the time as we do, it's easy to begin to identify many of these phases. And I've been looking for the opportunity to say this, and I'm taking really just a pastoral moment here to, to share this, and I do this for the purpose of helping you today. I really do want to be of help. One of the initial phases that we see people go through is what we would say is the shame and embarrassment phase. No doubt it's probably an appropriate reaction or response to whatever's happening in your life. And it's true that none of us really want our circumstances to be broadcast or put on the video announcements or the front page of the Star-Telegram, of course. However, what we see so often is that folks get so consumed with managing the shame and embarrassment of their situation that that becomes the priority rather than really getting to the root of their problem or dealing with what they need to deal with the true issue at hand, and it stops them from being able to move on into a healthier place. Now, hear me. Again, I want to be careful to say, does that mean we have to broadcast it? We have to get up and say, no, 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 no. None of us, none of us would want that. But there's a difference in that posture and a situation that says that you don't want to be in the position of slowing down the process of truly getting the help you need because you've become so consumed with the fact that you are ashamed, you are embarrassed over your family situation or what has taken place. Now, let me be quick to say not every family crisis, not even all of the ones that I dealt with this week are situations that really involve necessarily a component of shame and embarrassment, but many of them, many of them do. And so what I kind of want to say in a loving way to you as best I can is when you're ready to get over that, and can I just say that we, we have that, that sense of shame and embarrassment because we don't want to be judged by others. Well, what if people find out? What if they find out that our family's not perfect? Can I see the hands of the people in this room today who have a perfect family? Go ahead, raise your hand. I don't see one. Because you know what the truth is? We don't have a family in Bethesda that isn't dealing with issues. We don't have any group of people or, or any family or even any individual, but what isn't having to walk through the process, either of something that they brought on themselves or a family member has brought on, that would tend to disrupt the idea that they have a perfect family or a perfect life, no matter what they put on Facebook. <laughs> down, 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 down. Because it's just the reality that we all face today. And so, what I want to say is, as lovingly as I can, I certainly am not targeting anyone. I, 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 I never take advantage of this pulpit to do that in any regard. I don't care if you think I targeted the message right at you. It's not true. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't take advantage of this pulpit in that regard. I'm not permitted to do that. But I do say this. When you are ready to get over that for the purposes of getting to really deal with what it is that's going on in your life. And you can just say, you know what? It is what it is. We are where we are. 
And by the grace of God, we're going to make the best decisions we can to move forward from here so that God's health and healing and wholeness can come to you. You will get there much faster when you quit spending quite so much time on trying to manage the shame and the embarrassment of the situation. So back to where I started. That's all right. Back to where I started. This statement that we've made repeatedly about the altar is this, that the altar is the place of beginning. I truly believe that. It's not the place of the end. My church background, growing up in a classical Pentecostal environment, was you come to an altar, particularly on Sunday nights, you come to an altar and you cry everything out and you have this rather cathartic experience and you walk out and there's no change whatsoever. We tended to think that that was the, that was the end all. Just come and, 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 and come to the front somehow, and that was the end. It is not the end, it's the beginning. It's absolutely the beginning. Now, while it may well be that you come to the altar and you release something to God in, in response to the altar, it is more often true that when you come and you are prayed for, that you then walk away with a job to do with something to do. Whether you are coming for the first time to give your heart and your life to Christ, then you walk away from the altar to begin a life of discipleship and where you learn what Christian living is all about. And we have classes in place to help you do that. And they're taught by wonderful people who can help you get on the right track of living the Christian life. Or whether you come to acknowledge a, a heart issue within yourself and then you walk away from this altar to begin to deal with that issue in the grace of the Lord Jesus. No matter what the reason is for coming, and it could be any number of reasons, we almost always then walk away with something that we need to do. It may be to live in a new level of trust in God. Or there may be an actual action list that needs to be done on, on your behalf. Because coming to this altar is the beginning but it does not immediately fix everything for you that takes place outside of these walls. For you see, repentance starts in the mind. You acknowledge that your actions or the condition of your heart has violated the Lord. Repentance starts in the mind. And then it moves from the mind to the mouth because you must then confess with your mouth that which you have done. I mean literally naming it. I would challenge you to come to the point where you not simply say, and Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. No, name it. What exactly is it that you need God to forgive you for? Lord, forgive me that I've cheated on my taxes. Lord, I ask your forgiveness that I've violated my wife. You need to let it go from your mind to the place of the mouth to actually confess and say, Lord, in true repentance, I am sorry for what I have done, and I ask you to forgive me for whatever that is. And then the full measure of repentance is that once you've confessed your sin, then you set out to repentance as a turning the other way. You set out to actually change it. But let's understand this, that forgiven and fixed are two different things, and we should not confuse the two. Let me just be clear when I say the altar will change your relationship with God, but not necessarily with the IRS. The altar will change your life with Jesus, but not necessarily with the Texas courts or your probation officer. Encountering Jesus at the altar will change your life, but you still have to pay your visa bill. Hallelujah. And the scenario goes like this. 
If you robbed a bank yesterday, but today you're in church and you get saved, are you forgiven and going to heaven? The answer is yes. But can I tell you that it goes like this. I don't think you can tell the judge who wants to lock you up that yesterday at Bethesda Church you got saved. That's not going to have any bearing on him because let's say it this way. You are on your way to heaven, but as you go, you're also on your way to jail. But blessed is the man or woman who could say, I would rather be locked up yet free in my heart than to have the freedom of walking the streets but be imprisoned in my heart. That's a blessed person. The thing that is often hard for us to understand is that God's forgiveness will exonerate you in the courts of heaven, but it is not necessarily guaranteed to exonerate you in the courts of earth. Because while sin is forgiven in an instant, consequences can linger around for quite a while. You're forgiven, saved by grace through faith, but you still have things to which you need to tend, things you need to tend to, because the altar is the place of beginning. Just because you have borrowed money as an unbeliever, you still owe that money after you get saved. Can you say amen? If you owe gambling money as an unbeliever and you get saved, go ahead and try to tell that to Vinny and Sal when they come knocking on your door. (laughs) Salvation forgives you of your sin, but it doesn't resolve all of the things for which you have responsibility. This issue is important enough that God devoted an entire book of the Bible to it that we're going to look at this morning. And it happens in 25 verses of a little postcard of a letter Paul's letter to Philemon that reminds us that you can be saved and you can be forgiven, but you still have issues that you have to deal with. This scriptural narrative exposes us to a new convert that is going to have to face something that he otherwise would not have had to face if he were still living his life as an unbeliever and if he were still on the run. So we're going to go to this tiny New Testament book, which is positioned right before the book of Hebrews, and it's called Philemon. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul that we're going to read today. But before we read it, let me just put a couple things in place that hopefully makes it come alive for you a little more. Let's understand who the three players are. It's really just a very short book, 25 verses, the whole thing. First of all, we have the Apostle Paul who is both in prison and in Rome, and he is also the preacher and the writer of the letter. Secondly, we have the recipient of the letter, and his name is Philemon. This man is a slave owner from whom a slave has run away and has been, who was part of Philemon's staff. And thirdly, we have the slave, Onesimus, who is running and goes to Rome, and while he is in Rome, he just happens to, in a city of five million people at that time, he happens to run right into the Apostle Paul. And he gets saved, and while he's running away from trying to fulfill his agreement with his employer, Philemon, he gets saved. So what a coincidence. So Paul is the writer of the letter. Philemon is the employer who's had the runaway slave. Onesimus, Onesimus is the employee or the runaway slave. Anesimus gets saved, but now here's the deal. The Apostle Paul has written this letter, and the Apostle Paul has handed to Onesimus to say, now you take this back to Philemon. You take this back to your employer. And here's, here's what makes that situation sort of tricky. 
First of all, it was five million people that he ran into and, and, and at that period of time, five million people in Rome, they suspect two to three million of them were slaves. Not the way we would look at slavery according to our American history. Slavery in the first century held positions of up to 120 different occupations. Some of them were executive and salaried positions, with most slaves serving from 10 to 20 years, but they could be released at 30 years when their contract was expired. But here was the issue that's very important to our story, that when a slave who was under contract ran away, it was punishable by one of two things, either punishable by death, or they would brand you and put the letter F on your forehead, and the F stood for the Latin word fugitivus, from which we get the word fugitive. But clearly, that's what should happen to a runaway slave. And then when you get back or you are returned, after you've run away, your owner could either have you put to death, or if you were lucky, he would simply brand that letter F on your forehead. So that's the circumstance that Onesimus is facing when the Apostle Paul is telling him, guess what, buddy, I've written this letter, and you're going to take this back to your employer from whom you've run away. So the looming question for Onesimus is this, what's Philemon going to do when he receives his slave back? who is showing up with this letter from the Apostle Paul. Just imagine with me the, the drama when Onesimus, the slave, walks onto the property of, of his owner to bring him the letter from the Apostle Paul. And he's trying to say to him, but sir, I'm, I'm saved now. I'm, I'm a Christian now. I know I, I ran away knowing full well what his employer has the right to do. Can I say to you today, you might be here today and have the right to do something, but it's not the right thing to do. You may have the right to release an employee. You may have the right to sue someone. You may have the right to divorce because he did this or he did that or she did this or that. But Paul writes in a letter to us from Corinthians that we know well saying, but there is a more excellent way. So think of the magnitude of what Paul was asking of Philemon and, and, and of what he was asking Onesimus in returning to his owner with this letter. And Paul is trying to express to Philemon, the slave owner, that God had forgiven Onesimus, the slave. But the question was going to be, would Philemon forgive the slave? So the question, I think, is going to come to you and I today through this narrative that we're going to read in just a moment. What do we do with past relationships that need to be repaired? What do you do? with past relationships that need to be repaired, even though now you are forgiven by God? Have you just shoved it under the rug? Have you just blocked it out of your mind? Well, let's read this brief letter and discover what is here for us today. Philemon, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Athia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Now, we already have a hint of where this letter is going. Look what he's done. Look at the brilliance of Paul. I mean, what's he doing? He's, he's, he's buttering him up. That's just exactly what he's doing. 
Paul's about to discover if Philemon really has love for all God's people when Onesimus is, gonna, is showing up. So verse 6, and I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity. Now understand, he's reading this. He doesn't know where this is going yet. He's just reading. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ. Oh, yes, amen. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. The man has no idea what's coming. He's read seven verses, and this, this part looks really, really good so far. It's taken Paul seven verses to get him ready for what he's about to say. He's telling him, you are awesome, you are you love, your faith is great, you have re- refreshed the saints, and I'm sure if I leave, he's going, oh yes, this is true, isn't this wonderful? He recognizes my value. What a wonderful man this is. I can just see him saying, you know, I must be so very special, having no idea what's about to happen. And then verse 8. That's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. Now, I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this, please, as as, as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. And then here we go with the dropping of the name and the bombshell. This is the name that makes Philemon's skin crawl. Surely we understand this. There's got to be a name or two in your life that when it's mentioned in your present, it causes you to have some sort of reaction. They've done something to you or they've, they've cheated you in some way. And it's, it's that name that just can absolutely irritate you the moment you hear it, you have a reaction. I tried to think of some names, but there's too many people with those names in the congregation today and I couldn't do it. So don't say it out loud. But what is the name? that would absolutely set off a reaction in you. Don't point, don't none of that, don't do any of that. Well, for Philemon, here comes that name for him. Paul is saying, I have a favor to ask, so ask it, okay? How about Onesimus? Oh, that one? Any name but that name. Verse 10, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Paul is making it clear that Onesimus is now in the family of God because Paul had led him to Christ. So guess what he's saying? He's not just your employee. He's now your brother. And can't you just see Philemon looking over the letter as he's reading it and looking at Onesimus and wondering, how in the world did you ever meet Paul? Five million people in Rome and you ran into him, of all people, and you get saved? Paul says in verse 11, he says, Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I know he's run away, but something has happened to him, and that something that has happened to him is the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. And as Philemon is reading, there stands Onesimus, who has to be wondering, what's going to happen here? Is he going to kill me? Is he going to brand me? Verse 13, I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news. And he would have helped me on your behalf. 
Paul was saying, it would have been a good thing for me to keep him here. It would have been convenient. He could have helped me. It would have been in my best interest. But I knew it wasn't ethically right. He's forgiven by God. But he has a past that he needs to deal with. And though he would have been a help to me, I I couldn't just anoint him for ministry and give him business cards and suddenly refer to him as associate pastor Onesimus. I can't do that because he has a past with you that he needs to deal with. And I know he needs to go back and fix something because here's what's true. What you don't fix will eventually catch up to you. Trust me, you cannot outrun an unresolved past. I feel the love in the room. You cannot outrun an unresolved past. Somehow an unresolved past will find its way to you. And I have to say this when I read this. I certainly admire the maturity and wisdom of Paul in being able to take this young man after being saved and helping him to find his way back to deal with his unresolved past. That was great maturity and great wisdom on Paul's behalf. I know many a preacher, many a pastor who have said, you know what, he found the Lord under my ministry. I can claim him now. He's here to help me. He's here to be a part of what we're doing and too bad for everybody else. I know many people who would do that. But look at the wisdom of Paul. No. More than I care about my own self-interest, more than I care about how much he could be of help to me and what I could benefit from that, I want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord, and I'm sending him back to you. Verse 14, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. Paul is saying to Philemon, I wanted wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced to. Verse 15, it seems Onesimus ran away for a little while, and oh, I love this. It seems he ran away for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He's no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave, for he's a beloved brother, especially to me. And now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, oh, the brilliance of the Apostle Paul in writing this. So, if you put any value in our relationship, If you consider me a partner, this is intense, welcome him as you would welcome me. And look at the power of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, we are equals in Christ Jesus, an apostle and a new convert that was a fugitive on equal status. There is only way, folks, that can happen, and that's what the cross does for us. We all meet on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Can you say amen to that today? It doesn't matter whether you are a CEO or if you are living on government assistance. The cross makes us all equal. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you are wearing a suit today or a sweatshirt. We all needed Jesus the same way. Hallelujah to the King. You didn't need more of Jesus than I did. And I didn't need less of Jesus than you did. We all need everything that Christ has for us. And Paul's making it clear to us that just because the title apostle is before his name, it doesn't make him any higher than Onesimus in God. For we all need the Lord Jesus. And the moment Onesimus gets saved, this fugitive, this man on the run, 
We're brothers, and we're equal. And Paul is saying, welcome this man, even as you would welcome me. Now, keep your head in this scene with me for just a minute. And the man standing before you, if you're Philemon, is the man who's stolen from you. And though you owned him, he has run away from you. And now he's standing before you to try to fix his past. Verse 18. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Paul says, charge it to me. Put it on my tab. I, Paul, write this with my own hand and I will repay it. And here's the fun part of the story that I just love. I will repay it, he says. But um, I'm not going to mention that you owe me your very soul. We're not going to bring that part up. Don't you love that he says, we're not going to mention it, and then mentions it? (laughs) Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. Because I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. And yet the truth is, Paul writes this with no idea whether a brand would be put on the forehead of Onesimus or whether he would be killed and put to death by his owner. And then let's finish it. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what we have here, let me recap it briefly, and I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Onesimus is running for his life. He runs into Paul in Rome. He gets saved. Goes back with a letter to his owner. Gives it to him. And he has no idea what the future holds. What's interesting is this, church. We don't know how the story ends. We've read the whole of the narrative today. And it doesn't tell us how it ends. What I've shared with you is all that we have from Scripture. Now, the Hollywood ending that we might hope for would go something like this. And Philemon embraced him, and Onesimus would be his brother, and they lived happily ever after. But we don't know. But there is some other historical information about this story that's available to us. In the first century, there were what we would call the early church fathers, and one of them was named Ignatius. There is historical information that tells us that Ignatius, while walking on his way to martyrdom, it was a journey that took weeks, they said he was able to write letters. And they still have these letters hundreds of years later. The interesting part of this, in this story about Onesimus, is this. One of these letters that was written, watch this, was to a bishop in Ephesus whose name was Onesimus. Many historians believe that the end of our story was this, that he was forgiven. He went into the ministry, and he became one of the great church leaders of that time with a past that's resolved, a Christianity that is current, and a ministry that was waiting for him to take on. So, why would God, by the Holy Spirit, put this little postcard of a book in the New Testament? And right next to Hebrews, by the way, that incredible epistle. Why would God put this in the Bible? Well, here's what I think we should consider from this passage. 
I believe that real true friendship is always tested by forgiveness. True friendship is tested by forgiveness. Real friendship is tested by will you forgive? Depth of relationship is created by conflict. Depth of relationship in a marriage with a single person and someone else it's, is created by conflict and resolve. It is created by being offended and hurt and yet extending forgiveness. So do you let conflict with friends be the catalyst to move on to new friends? As soon as you have it out with somebody and, thing, and something goes wrong in that relation, are you done with them? And then do you just move on? Because if that's true, then here's the reality for you. You have no depth of relationship. Because if you have friends, let me give you this newsflash today, you will get hurt. How many know I'm telling you the truth? You will get hurt. If you're involved with somebody, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've been hurt, then there is a resolve that digs deep inside of us. Conflict, humility, apology, owning it, dealing with it. It doesn't harm a relationship. No, no, no. It deepens a relationship. That is just how it works. And in verse 16, Paul says to Philemon, if you can forgive, he's not going to just be your employee. He's going to be your brother. And not by contract. He's going to be your brother forever. He says, you want, a, you want a friend forever? Then extend forgiveness. You want a marriage that lasts? Then extend forgiveness. How many married people say that's true? By law, you have the right to brand him. By law, you have the right to kill him. But you lose something when you don't extend forgiveness and not take the more excellent way. Brent, why don't you come? I'm going to close in just a minute. And I'm going to ask, please, that you remain seated for the rest of this service. Your moving around can be a distraction to others who need to hear this. Please remain seated. You know, there are simply three characters in our story today. The Apostle Paul, who's the writer of the letter, and the one who had to choose maturity in dealing with the new convert. There's Philemon, the employer who had rights, who was violated by his employee, who was challenged by the word of the Apostle Paul, and he has to make a decision to forgive or to remain bitter. And then there's Onesimus, the employee, the slave. He's the runaway. He's the mess up, the one who deserves to be branded or killed for what he has done, the one desperately in need of forgiveness. Every person at some time in our lives have been, have been a runaway from God because the Bible says all of us have sinned. In the midst of being AWOL from God, God somehow, some way will find you. If it's in the midst of five million people, will find you. And he will get his message to you. Because look what the psalmist says. He says this, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. What does that tell us? It tells us very clearly that God is committed to runaways. He's absolutely committed to those who, for whatever reason, have run away from him. 
It's very likely that some of us in this room today are on the run. And the message of this book is very simple. It says you can come home and there's a God who will accept you today. And he is so committed to receiving you back into himself. That's the message of this book. You don't even have to question or doubt if God will accept you today. It doesn't matter what you have done. He says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Is there anyone in the room thankful for that today? Then stand with me, please. Let's stand together.